Well, good afternoon and welcome to another great Clearwater Jazz Holiday Foundation's Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Session. Uh, today's educator is going to be Alejandro Arenas and the What I Love About Ray Brown. It's going to be an awesome session. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, don't forget, participants are muted upon entry and during the master class. We appreciate your cooperation to remain muted for the courtesy of others. So if you have a question, you can use that chat feature and we'll reserve some time to answer questions at the end. And don't forget, uh, you can check out other sessions and they're all free. You can check us out at www.clearwaterjazz.com education. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for future topics, you can just email us at info at cluewaterjazz.com. Also, be sure to check out the studio archive of past video sessions at cluewaterjazz.com's education and outreach section. And that's brought to you by Blue Water Wealth Management at Stewart Partners and Duke Energy, as well as our Young Line podcast available wherever you stream. Uh, and it's brought to, our, brought to you by our friends at Marine Max Clearwater. So search Young Lines Jazz Master Virtual Sessions wherever you stream. So a couple sessions that we've had Alejandro present. Here's a few of them. Bass styles and approach to playing swing, funk, and more. How about this? Harmony, a bass perspective, 825. I wonder why he's always talking about bass. Hmm. Strange. <laughs> Fun with arranging part two. And what I love about Wilbur Ware, Oscar Pettiford. So just a little bit about Alejandro before we get started in this exciting session. He was born in Colombia, where he started his musical career playing flamenco and classical jazz. During his high school years, he performed with different independent bands with styles ranging from salsa, blues, rock, and heavy metal. Upon graduating high school, he moved to Gainesville, Florida. All right. And he worked as a freelance musician where he was exposed to different genres such as reggae, jazz, and funk. And I hear these genres every time I hear Alejandro play. It's always a pleasure. And uh, just to let you know a little bit more, he has his bachelor's in music and jazz performance and a master's of music from the University of South Florida. And he's part of this award-winning group, La Lucha. In addition to that, he's adjunct professor for the Mirror Program at St. Petersburg College, where Alejandro is a very active and versatile performer working with many artists. So without any further ado, Alejandro, stage is all yours. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Um, today, uh, we're going to talk, as, as Michael said, I, I'm going to talk about Ray Brown, uh, who to me is just a, a very extremely influential musician uh, personally. And I'll actually just start sharing the PowerPoint here. Um, he was just he's just kind of bass personified to me <laughs> in a sense is one of these uh almost larger than life uh characters who um just inspired me endlessly uh last week i did a class about james jamerson and i was talking about how i discovered ray brown through james jamerson because this was james jamerson's uh favorite bass player and 
So I wanted to talk about Ray Brown because he means uh, so much to me and so much to jazz in general, actually, as we'll see. So let's get started here. Uh, he was born on October 23rd, 1926 in Pittsburgh, and he started on piano, uh, but moved to bass out of necessity. This seems to be the story of just about any bass player. <laughs> they rarely start, start on bass as their first instrument. Um, but basically what happened to him was the, the, they had a lot of piano players in his high school and they needed bass players. So he started playing bass, but he had been influenced by bass already um, throughout his youth. And uh, he moved to New York in 1945, uh, right in the middle of the bebop movement. He was kind of a little, kind of a latecomer in, in terms of that, but uh, it was already established. And, you know, Dizzy Gillespie, Charlie Parker, uh, Kenny Clark, a lot of those guys were, were already established and playing around town. So he just kind of came into that. And he said, they played fast, but I managed. <laughs> so... He just fit right in and noticed he was only 19 when he moved there. And he gained attention by playing Dizzy Gillespie's orchestra. Um, Dizzy Gillespie had some small groups earlier on, but then he started a, a big band um, of sorts, like a bebop big band. And Ray Brown was an essential part of that. And we'll, we'll watch a little bit of that uh, here once we start looking at the videos. Um, later on, he became an integral part of the Jazz at the Philharmonic. Jazz at the Philharmonic was an organization or, or a concept that Norman Granz, who started Verve Records, um, developed. Basically, he wanted to bring jazz into the concert hall. You know, at this point, jazz wasn't really, it was a club um, genre, you know, club, uh, basically just played in clubs. But he really wanted audiences around the world to see these, um, to bring jazz to the masses, basically. Uh, beyond recordings and so he started this whole thing called jazz at the philharmonic hence the term and he had just a all-star cast of musicians that that uh toured together and then they played together too they kind of had jam sessions at the end each one of them kind of had a feature set and uh ray brown was the bass player for a lot of those sessions uh he was kind of the in the midst of a lot of those sessions uh uh, he was actually the bass player in, in the Charlie Parker with Strings album. And um, later on, he actually started playing with Oscar Peterson, who he met through Jazz at the Philharmonic. And that was kind of his most um, notable gig uh, he had for many years. And really, um, Oscar Peterson pushed him in ways that where basically he had all these unison lines and, and just really technically challenging parts for the bass that he wanted him to double with the piano. And, you know, that pushed him into opening up his playing a lot. And that was kind of uh, how he made most of his strides, how he really became very influential because the Oscar Peterson trio was extremely influential. Um, when he quit that gig, he moved to California in the mid 60s and did a lot of studio work, you know, a lot of movie stuff, a lot of uh, and backing people too. he played with Sinatra and Nancy Wilson, um, a lot of West Coast musicians that were passing through there. He stayed mostly there. He did a few albums in the 70s. He, he was he was always very involved in the straight ahead jazz um, thing, kind of like the bebop uh, great American songbook 
stuff. Um, and in 1984, he formed a trio under his name with Gene Harris and Jeff Hamilton. This was the first of many trios he would have. And at this point, he was really kind of a, a you know, statesman, you know, kind of a living jazz legend. And um, he liked to feature younger musicians with his trio, and which I'll talk, I'll talk about a little bit later. Uh, and he really continued to perform very actively until his death on July 2nd, 2002. Uh, unfortunately, I, I never got to see him when I, when I, in my musical education, when I, when I discovered Ray Brown, uh, it was just a couple of months that he passed away. And, um, you know, it, it, I had, a, I had an opportunity to last year to play a gig with, uh, Russell Malone. Uh, well, I almost played a gig with Russell. We were supposed to play a gig, but COVID happened and basically we did a sound check and that was it. But I mentioned to Russell Malone how the last record that ray brown recorded was with him and monty alexander and you know russell just said like man oh, i wish you could have met ray you know you would have loved him you know so he was really kind of a, a larger than like i mentioned earlier kind of a larger than life figure to a lot of people and continues to be um and that's one of the things that i love about him you know the, the, the he was very well known He's really kind of one of the most important musicians in the history of jazz. Um, and it's not an accident. He wasn't necessarily, he didn't really necessarily pioneer stuff, um, but his time feel and his sound um, were just so unique. And actually his time feel was very interesting uh, from drummers that I've, that I've heard that actually played with him, uh, including Chuck Red, who I had the, the pleasure of he was in, in the La Lucha album, or last album, um, Chuck Red played with um, Ray Brown when he was very young, uh, when Chuck was very young. And through a few different drummers, I had heard this story of, of like of saying that the first time they played with Ray was a little bit difficult because he was really on top of the beat. And they didn't really know what to do with that because they were used to bass players being actually a little bit behind the beat. And the... Basically, Ray's um, approach to that is that he he would ask them, like, well, what do you think the audience is hearing? You know, would they, would they hear a right symbol first or would they hear a bass note first? Then, you know, he was aware that of the sonic difference between the, the instruments. So the bass takes a little bit longer to speak. It's low frequencies. You know, you have this big body um, that requires a lot of air to put you know to, to put out sound so with the low frequencies traveling further and the audience being further away from the band he was aware that what they heard was different than what they were hearing on stage so basically his theory was that he with him being a little bit more on top by the time the audience hears that he would be right on with the right symbol um which is very important. That's what you lock on with, and and that was kind of his his thing, really. That's that's what a lot of people talked about, and because of that time feel and everything, he really kind of had a commanding presence on presence on and off the stage because he was very self assured of that. You know, he was he had his 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 approach, and he was going to drive the band. You know, he really had that ability. He was very very much didn't really need a drummer in order to hold it all together. I mean, most great bass players don't really need that, but 
he had a, a specific um, attack to when he played, which I'll talk about more in detail here. But he really was um, had that particular feel that you can really hear in those recordings, and you know it's Ray Brown from a mile away. Um, he was very bluesy too. He never abandoned uh, that. He had strong blues roots in his playing, which you'll hear. Um, some of it was the phrasing, obviously, being able to play the blues with the feel of the blues too. Um, and he was really a master of his instrument. He knew the, the fingerboard really, really well, especially his arpeggios and, and scales. He knew them all over the place. And this allowed him to be, to create highly inventive yet functional bass lines. I say yet functional because highly inventive doesn't always necessarily mean that you're going to play something that's um, outlining the chord progression quite as well. He was really able to use the whole range of the instrument to create bass lines that were, that were very cool and you could always hear the chord progressions really, really well whenever he was playing with or without a piano. Uh, and I'll show you a, kind of a, a, an interesting thing. Another thing that he did, um, show you an interesting thing in, in one of the videos, <laughs> finish that sentence. Uh, but one of the things that he kind of introduced as well, he wasn't necessarily or originator of this, but of this, but he played a lot of like triplet drops uh, of what we hear a lot of times, kind of some skips to create rhythmic interest in the bass line. And that allowed him to include more notes within the walking bass lines to outline that harmony a little bit more efficiently. So <clears throat> um, let's listen to a little bit of what um, Ray played on. So this first one is actually a hymn at the age of 20, played with the Dizzy Gillespie Orchestra. Uh, this is called One Bass Hit. And you'll see here, I'll, I'll play a little bit of it. I can talk a little bit after that.
Brown at the age of 20 being featured with the Dizzy Gillespie Orchestra. Um, he really, you know, it's funny because they're actually, it looks like they're playing live, but they used to do this a lot where they were actually just kind of mime, well, they still do <laughs> lip syncing, but um, it, 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 it's, it, you know, they would present a lot on TV. They would actually do a recording specifically for the TV, but then once they went live, they would actually just mime to it. Um, I don't know, sometimes it probably had to do with the visual aspect of not having microphones in the way, or I'm not exactly sure why sometimes they would choose to do that. But um, yeah, so one bass hit, they were, uh, there was another song, two bass hit, which had part one, part two. So it was kind of like, uh, follows that tradition of featuring the bass with a big band, with the horns kind of playing in the spaces and all of that stuff. A lot of what um, Jimmy Blanton did with Duke Ellington. And uh, Ray Brown uh, was very influenced by um, by um, Jimmy Blanton, actually. Um, he actually did a record with Duke Ellington um, as a tribute to Jimmy Blanton in the 70s. So, all right. So the next video is with the Oscar Peterson Trio. So this is the first configuration of the Oscar Peterson Trio where he had um no drums so it was piano guitar and bass and basically uh it was herb ellis original was barney kessel on guitar but um this particular recording you'll you'll see i'll play a little bit and you can check out i'll talk a little bit about it One thing to notice there, what he plays at the beginning, he's playing in two, he's playing like this broken two feel, uh, which he played in a very cool way because he, he wasn't just playing um, like a traditional two beat, but he really outlined a lot of, you can hear where his bass lines uh, came from in the sense that he would play some rhythmic stuff to connect the chords um, very effectively. He added an extra bounce to that. A uh, cool thing that Herb Ellis used to do there is that he, he was kind of tapping the guitar to em emulate kind of the drums, almost like a bongos in a sense. Um, but you notice how when he starts walking there, you know, this is not the best recorded uh, thing, um, but you can hear when he starts walking, there's just no doubt what, their time, what that time is. This was just an extremely swinging group and just Ray Brown was a big part of that. Um, the next video is actually um, the Oscar Peterson Trio a few years later with a drummer, Ed Thickpen. This is actually my favorite, my personal favorite 
um, version of this trio um, because it was just incredibly swinging. So this is a song called Bags Groove, uh, which is actually Bags is um, the nickname for Mill Jackson, great vibraphonist. And uh, Ray Brown actually collaborated with him a lot. Um, so this is a bass feature. I'll play some of it and talk about it. stop it there for a second and I'll play the rest in a minute. Just wanted to point out a couple of things there. Uh, Oscar Peterson's actually playing the melody there. So he's leaving all of this space for Ray to do his fills. If you're a drummer or a pianist watching this, this is perfectly okay to do. <laughs> Leave the space, uh, there's some space for the bass player. Um, you know, a lot of times piano players just tend to, you know, they have 10 fingers or not afraid to use them. So, um, you know, it's it's. I've always liked this about the Oscar Peterson trio that Oscar could play just about every note there was in one measure, <laughs> and but he had songs like this where he was just extremely tasteful and just leaving that space to feature the bass and you kind of have this back and forth and you can hear the blues there on on, on Ray's phrasing and his playing is just his feel is just incredible. This is a really hard tempo to play at actually. Um, and Ed Thickman's just, you know, so tasteful uh, playing with brushes and playing to the dynamics of the bass. You can hear how big the sound is, even in a stage like this, which is not not necessarily uh, an optimal space for recording, but it sounds great. You, know, you can see the microphone there for the for the for the piano. There's uh, from another angle, you'll see one on the on the drums, and then there was just a microphone in front of the bass. This was pre-amplification days. So I'll play a little bit here because there's something cool in this video. This part you can see is right-hand technique. So again, um, I wanted to point out that where he just puts his hand is a really important part of Ray Brown's sound. It's just, you know, he's playing a lot of passages with one finger, but he's also 
kind of anchored with his thumb on the side of the fingerboard. He's kind of anchored at the end of the fingerboard. So he's getting a lot of attack. Um, that's kind of the sweet spot for the bass to speak that way. Um, and he, from other angles, you can see he sticks his elbow out a little bit. And part of that has to do with the angle and at, 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 at a, it, the angle it gives him to pluck the strings away from the fingerboard gets more sound that way. Um, so another thing that he emphasized, and I'll, they'll show it here in a second. Left hand. One of the things there you can actually see, he has kind of the, the position there for the Simandl technique. You know, you can see his, his left hand was really clean, you know, in terms of technique. It's very, his, his shifting and everything is very efficient. Um, and one thing that's very interesting that he always talked about was holding the note down as long as possible to get, let the, the note fully developed. So that was another big part of his sound, you know, his right hand approach and his left hand approach. Uh, it was just letting those notes, you know, he came, he spoke about how in New Orleans, you know, a lot of those players kind of really focused more on the rhythmic aspect of the bass, you know, so they would raise the action really high so they could slap. A lot of bass players used to slap back in, in the New Orleans days. So um, it was really more of a percussion instrument uh, at that point. And Ray really kind of said, well, let's let's look at this a different perspective. And that's kind of how he developed all that um, approach. And that's what part of the reason why he became so influential. So I'll show you a little another video here. Um, so this is actually a bass transcription of one of my favorite recordings of uh, Ray Brown playing with Sonny Rollins. Um, this is kind of a an album, a trio album that he did, Sonny Rollins, Ray Brown, and Shelly Mann. Uh, Shelly Mann was a West Coast-based drummer, and um, Sonny Rollins, I think, was on his first tour of in the West Coast. Ray Brown was over there with uh, Oscar Peterson, I believe, and Shelly Mann was actually based in that area. And the story, if I understand it correctly, is that basically after all of them were done with their gig at night, they just booked the studio and recorded this album called Way Out West. Uh, and it's kind of a funny album because a lot of the material is kind of Western songs, <laughs> um, not necessarily jazz standards, but it's a really cool album. And, you know, there's no comping instrument. Uh, there's really no nobody playing chords so it's all ray brown outlining the chord changes so i'll play a little bit here of this and then analyze the baseline a little bit not, not get too not to get too in depth but Thank you. 
I'll stop it there for a second uh, before it switches uh, to the bridge. A um, couple of things, you know, the way he's outlining the chord changes is very simple because there is no piano. So he really has to make sure the chord changes are heard. So you can see at the beginning, he's just playing basically a triad, you know, root, fifth, third, same thing, uh, root, fifth below, third, uh, with the eight notes there. So that he did that a lot when he plays dun ka dun. He kind of sets up the next bar uh, with that little swing. And then he has this, this motive he uses here, the triplets. And you can see it here again, same section. And it, it, it goes all the way up to a D flat. And then it's just two notes. Um, he's outlining not the full chord, but he's playing a G7 flat five. So he's playing the D flat, which is the flat five, and then the G. So he's using open strings to really be able to get all around the bass pretty quickly. But it, it, that's all he really needs to outline that. And the cool thing is that he changes the rhythm or the order of the notes slightly um, to make it slightly different every time. He doesn't really play the same thing twice. It's not, he has an idea of what the kind of motive is, but he doesn't play the same, same way twice. Uh, also here, you can see he's using the spaces Sonny Rollins is leaving on the melody to kind of do fills. So he's not just walking through that, uh, this kind of a scale pattern in, in, um, in triplets ascending. And then he has this little melodic mode and, that low E there, which is not actually part of the chord, but it works very efficiently to kind of, and this F shouldn't really be there, uh, but it works really well to kind of shift there and go back to the low register. Um, I'll keep on playing it here. That's just what he plays on the head. Um, takes a really nice solo later, but uh, what I run it, you know, this baseline is just so effective. It's simple, but it's really effective and it really showcases a lot of Ray Brown-isms. Uh, one thing that he does that's pretty cool here on this uh, bar, um, he plays this A, you know, it's you can you could argue as part of this chord, but really he's just going by a fifth up to the D. Uh, he would create sometimes this movement in the last two beats of the bar where he would play a fourth, uh, almost like including an extra two five one that's not necessarily in in the chord progression. So uh, he would use kind of the bass movement to you know natural things. You know, when you play a two five one. Uh, that's it moving in fourths. So he would sometimes play that before switching to a chord, even if that's not necessarily what was being played on a piano or, um, you know, or, or harmonically. So it kind of added this nice little melodic 
phrase that didn't seem out of place because it's you're already hearing the bass doing a lot of that but he did that um very efficiently and sometimes you know you can see here in this line at the end he's just playing a turnaround but you know when he goes to the f minor he's playing an a flat um which is the third of the chord so what he could do sometimes was play longer melodic phrases so he would outline a chord and then sometimes he would he could just think of a long two bar phrase in walking you know so it's, it's almost like he's it's a solo with quarter notes you know with the occasional triplet and eight notes but he's really just when especially after the first chorus once the listener already understands the chord progression he could get a lot more melodic and you can see how he's just using a lot of the range of the bass um so this next video is the last one i have but it is from a master class he did many years ago and this is his advice i'll just let him talk <laughs> the most important thing you can do with this instrument is not play fast not play solos but get a good sound play in tune this is where you will get your job from a guy came up to me and he said I play the bass very good and he played for me played everything beautifully but his sound was awful and I said just go back and learn how to get a sound out of the instrument important thing you can do now I'm telling you from an experience I've worked with all of the singers Sinatra Ella Fitzgerald Carmen McRae Sarah Vaughan Bing Crosby you name them all of them I played with all the saxophone players Coleman Hawkins Getz Lester Young Ben Webster Illinois Jacket tons of them Charlie Parker, Johnny Hodges, Cannonball Early, everybody. First thing they want, they don't want somebody playing behind them. They want to hear. pay you for it, good, and you'll work the rest of your life. <laughs> I guarantee you, you're looking at an old guy up here that works all the time. <laughs> so that's just great advice. <laughs> uh, it's funny because he actually plays, you know, when he shows his walking bass line, you see a lot of the stuff that he does, which is this, this awesome 
triple runs, you know, he just plays like these long phrases, but the thing is that his time is right there. It, so it doesn't matter if he's playing actually a lot of notes, he's using them in a very musical way. He's just, you know, and he was an extremely sought after musician, you know, the, uh, a lot of singers, as he mentions in the video, you know, just love playing with him because he just gave them that foundation. They, they, they didn't need to worry about anything with him playing and he just gave them this solid foundation. And one thing that's important, you know, there's a debate of who's the timekeeper in a band and that shouldn't be a debate. You know, everybody should play with good time. That's basically the, the simple answer. But of course, that doesn't always happen. So a lot of the times, because the bass is playing quarter notes, some people look to the bass to really kind of provide that. Um, now, if everybody's playing with good time, the, the gig is a lot easier for everybody. <laughs> so um, that's that's the number one thing. And, and he was not, you know, when you heard Ray Brown played, there was no doubt where the time was. Um, and that's just priceless you know he he really did work until he died he he was i think he was on tour when when he he passed away um so you know he he has a point and so it's good to listen to that so um these are the conclusions of this um ray brown really kind of to me just epitomizes jazz bass um, I mean, it's a kind of a broad statement because there's a lot of different styles. There's a lot of guys that have become very influential since then. You know, Scott LaFaro, for example, who played with uh, Bill Evans and had a very different style from Ray Brown. Um, but, you know, I'm sure there's no doubt that Scott was probably influenced by Ray Brown because a lot of people were at that point. You know, they of course everybody develops their sound and then go go to do their own thing but i think ray brown was really kind of one of those guys along with like um with paul chambers and some of the guys in that era that really defined what the bass could do uh or should do in a band you know you can see the progression of the music of jazz from the early days until you know now how the bass really became I mean, all of the instruments change, but I think the bass is one of the instruments that had that that has really been um, come to the forefront a little bit more, uh, mainly because some some um, changes in technology, better strings. You know, back in back in the '40s, uh, prior to the '40s, the, pretty much in the up until the late '50s, you had to play with gut strings, which could get out of tune very easily, and they weren't very easy to play. Uh, so steel strings. Uh, uh, Ray Brown was actually one of the first people that adopted steel strings, um, but he always sounded great. That's the thing. Like it didn't matter what he was playing, he just always sounded like Ray Brown. Uh, he had the sound. He really had you know you can hear hear it on every recording and you can see some youtube videos where he's playing live and obviously they're recording through the pickup um, which he was actually very um open about using he he was he was very 
really accepting of technology changes to help him you know he was very welcoming of pickups and amps but he insisted they should be used as tools to simply amplify your sound and not as a as a crutch really that that his point was you develop the sound first and then you just use the amplifier to amplify that sound you know so don't let whatever's getting in you know whatever pickup or whatever amp affect what it is that you're doing. So if you have already a good sound, that'll come across. Um, a lot of the, he really kind of set the standard for walking baselines. A lot of guys uh, study, still study him, like in terms of uh, accomplished players, you know, Gary Peacock, who passed away recently, actually said that he, as a warm up in the mornings, he would uh, bring out, take, he had a book of uh, walking baselines that he had transcribed uh, from Ray Brown. And he used to just play through them, you know, because he's, the material is, is just great. And, you know, just two courses of his bass lines, you know, it's, it's a great um, way to get around the entire bass, really. <laughs> and um, he really kind of had a lifelong commitment to his craft because he always improved, um, but he was always, he was always taking care of his chops. He really, you know, people would say that when he was in his 70s, he, he died when he was 75 and, and they, would, they would still hear him just practicing in his uh, hotel room prior to the, the gig. And he really just understood what it, he needed to do in order to keep his chops in good shape. Um, he helped keep the flame of jazz alive um, really by featuring a lot of up and coming musicians in his trio and also become a mentor to them. A few people that come to mind are Diana Krall, um, Benny Green, Jeff Keiser, Christian McBride, John Clayton. A lot of people were, and Russell Malone, who I mentioned earlier, a lot of those people really, he was a mentor to them um, in many ways. And that's great. It's, it's really good to be able to find somebody that's willing to share that and not only share that but give the experience open open up his uh name and you know the, the name that he carries and the the um just uh, you know opening himself you know to them to be able for them to grow as musicians and for the world to know them uh he was kind of a connecting he was connecting audiences and, and generations, if you will, um, you know, since he was already established. Um, and he just left behind a vast legacy of recordings that should be studied by every jazz musician, not just um, bass One very cool thing that I like about the way the Oscar Peterson trio, and really a lot of that came from Ray Brown, um, the way they approached uh, standards uh, I like learning their versions of standards because they took the Great American Songbook songs, but they actually played cool, like good sets of changes that were somewhere in between the bebop tradition and the original changes. Uh, so I personally really like to 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 check out the way they play certain changes on certain tunes because they always kind of give me an idea on how to approach it or it shows you variations that you can have on more traditional changes. Um, and I think they still, you know, within the straight ahead jazz repertoire, they still stand out um, today. So 
there's a lot of check out to check out in his playing and on his what he recorded and everything so go and dig in there's a lot of like i said there's a lot of recordings a lot of stuff with the oscar peterson trio and beyond he did uh the poll winners with barney kessel shelly played a lot with shelly man uh and he recorded every decade he was very active in every decade and he actually there's an album where he plays cello as well uh early on um like what oscar pettiford was doing and sam jones so check check that out he has some great stuff um and uh that's it for Ray Brown. Awesome, awesome, Alejandro. Really enjoyed your research on Ray Brown today. And I, I know we had a few questions to come in. Mm -hmm. um, first question is, uh, I know you made the statement that um, learn how to play the bass in tune and have a good sound. <laughs> so <laughs> that right there is, is classic in itself but what do you think uh what would you say most young musicians struggle with when it comes to developing a good bass sound would it be say hand position would it be their pool their pizzicato you know we hear this great sound that ray brown developed and it was full he held the notes out um what do you think they struggle with the most you know I, I think a combination of those things. I think um, for me personally, one of the issues that I had um, was my right hand used to move a lot up and down the neck when I was trying to pluck. Um, so it wasn't really in a stable position. Like I, I tended to get tense and my hand tended to creep up, <laughs> especially on, on, on faster tempos. Um, and really by watching Ray Brown, uh, that allowed me to realize, okay, it's actually, you know, it's not the only way, but it's a great way to kind of, uh, look at that. The left hand also, I think the tendency for a lot of younger musicians is to worry more about the notes than the sound, you know, and the time. So what tends to happen with that is that you're more concerned about what your left hand is doing and being able to play all the right notes, but you're maybe sacrificing time uh, and feel, which comes hand in hand and um, and sound because of that, you know, like the, a simple thing like that is just like hold your hand longer and you, you the, the note needs to be able to develop. Um, I think those are things that I know I personally struggled with when I was first starting to play the bass. And, and I still have to remind myself because sometimes a lot of the times too, the, uh, when you learn to play with an amplifier, that is a, an issue as well, because you get used to the sound, um, that comes out of the amplifier. You get, you, you can become reliant up on the on the volume that the amplifier gives you and the tone that the pickup gives you. And, you know, that can be tricky to deal with. So I think um, in terms of if you're trying to develop your sound, just look at, you know, kind of like what Ray Brown said is the sound um, and playing in tune. Uh, being able to play all the right notes is great, but it's more important that you stay playing in time. And if you do it, you know, with a good sound, it, 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 it'll <laughs> it can open a lot of doors, even if you're not playing all the right changes, you know, then you can learn to play the right. I mean, obviously doing 
all of those things is 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 essential you know but i think um i know in my case the sound wasn't something that i was worried about at the beginning uh, i came from electric bass and, and guitar actually and when i first started playing the upright i I didn't have a teacher, so I was just kind of teaching myself, trying to play like an electric bass uh, in terms of fingering, and didn't realize that, you know, when I started taking lessons later, then like, oh, okay, this is, this is how this is supposed to be done. I was making it a lot harder on myself, but the ultimately what I was just trying, I was just trying to keep up with the instrument itself. It's a very difficult instrument to play, so that's one of the things that's tricky that at the beginning the lack of frets you know the lack of precision as to where you're playing can get in the way of developing a good sound and ultimately you know it doesn't matter what technique you have on the left hand or anything like that you know i've seen with some of the classes that i've done already with some of the people we've seen all sorts of different ways that people play but they all have a good sound and good time and and, and a good way to approach that so Yes, I think the biggest struggle at the beginning is that is is trying to stay in tune uh, and no worry about the left hand just well. I mean, obviously, make it all work together, but um, never forget to really emphasize that part of it, the sound and the time first and foremost. Okay. Great answer. So, I mean, we hear the long list of musicians that he played with from Dizzy Gillespie to Sonny Rollins. And uh, one thing he talked about was simplicity hmm. and being able to stay employable <laughs> and working all the time. Uh, what would you say, and this could go for young musicians or uh, seasoned musicians, hmm. uh, how do you find that balance between doing too much on your instrument and doing enough that you're relevant, you're in the pocket and, you know, you still have a voice on your instrument. So where do you find, how do you find that balance? You know, um, that's a great question. I think a lot of it is you know, the, the complicated thing about being a sideman especially as a bass player is that you're extremely important but you're kind of in the background <laughs> in terms of 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 what people expect from you you know um i think part of that you know like i said ray brown was a commanding presence when he got on the stage he was not really necessarily a guy that would i mean he would stay in the background you know if that's what they get called for that's what he would do but when he got the chance to shine he was right there and i think finding that balance has to do with obviously keeping your ego in check you know realize like okay kind of it's okay to ask sometimes you know somebody hey man do you want me to play more or or you know what do you want me you know some i've played with piano players who really just want me to play their chord changes they don't want me to suggest any 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 um substitutions or anything like that. they just want me to play what they're playing just keep the time and that's it you know not even play a bass solo you know maybe one in one tune late in the set or something like that which is fine. I'm okay with that. And, and, and you have to become okay with that. that. That's the thing Like you have to realize that 
sometimes if you're on somebody else's gig, that's what you're going to have to do. And then there's people that you play with that are just completely open to whatever happens, you know. And I, and I found that issue sometimes too, where I'm kind of hesitating. I'm like, should I do more? Should I jump in there? Should I be more interactive? So then, you know, somebody, sometimes people will tell me like, yeah, man, play more. You know, you can, you can, you can do more. So it's, it's tricky because some of that just comes from experience of playing with people. I do think that it is important regardless, you know, obviously if you're playing a show, let's say that you're hired to play a show uh, with somebody, you know, if you have a particular style that doesn't fit within that, um, you know, like if you, if you go to a straight ahead gig and you start playing like Scott LaFaro with Bill Evans, you know, I don't, that's, that's not going to fly for some people, you know, doesn't matter how well you play, uh, because what they want to hear is something different, you know, and that people have told me like, think Ray Brown, or think, you know, this guy, think that guy, you know, because they had that specific sound. And I, that part of that comes from that from studying all of these guys and being able to emulate their sound to a certain extent. Uh, and honestly, sometimes, I've, I've been in situations where I, when I see myself like, ah, I don't want to, you know, I hear something different here that I think is just as valuable. You know, I'm not Ray Brown, you know, <laughs> I can try to play like him. Um, you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset that I always, I'm progressive in terms of the music and I like to try new things and I like to do all that. But you know, if I am hired to do a specific job, I need to be able to recognize that that's the job that I'm hired to do and do it, you know, and, uh, you know, this goes for many different styles of music too, not just jazz. Um, but I do, I, in the end, kind of the, the, the short answer is, you know, be aware, you know, read the room <laughs> in a sense, you know, know who you're playing with and what, what they're playing and what their vibe is. And I think it's okay. One thing that's really good, actually, sometimes that I've done gigs where, you know, somebody that I'm playing with for the first time, we're playing standards and then we play the first set and then I get a chance to talk to them during the break. And then we start talking about players or musicians or music that we have in common. Then I, it gives me a better insight into how they're approaching the music, you know? Um, so then usually the second set is much better. Not that the first one wasn't necessarily bad, but then I feel more comfortable opening up certain things or knowing kind of what to do. But ultimately, I think you should stay true to yourself unless you're shooting yourself in the foot trying to do that, which I've seen as well. There are some people that will not move from their position, regardless of how radical it is. And, you know, I mean, that makes you less employable, unfortunately, you know. Okay. Yeah, we've seen that time and time again. Alejandro, another awesome, awesome session. All this great information on Ray Brown. And uh, I love, I was listening to him before we had the interview and uh, you could just put it on and continue to just <laughs> ride out for the rest of the day. So I want to thank you again for that great research and giving us a sneak peek on the inside of his career and his life. We really enjoyed that. And I just want to remind everyone uh, that came out today of all the amazing sessions we have here at Clearwater Jazz, Young Lion, Master Virtual Sessions. There's so many awesome things happening here. You don't want to miss out. So don't forget 
to go to the website, www.clearwaterjazz.com. You can check us out on the education and outreach side and just um, tell other people about what you're seeing here, whether they're students or seasoned uh, musicians. And we want to hear more from you. So if you have any suggestions on topics we should touch on, uh, just email us at info at clearwaterjazz.com. So thank you again, and we will see you on the next one. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Clearwater Jazz Holidays, Young Lions Jazz Master Virtual Sessions. Thank you to our friends at Marine Max Clearwater for helping to present this podcast series. To learn more about the Clearwater Jazz Holiday Annual Festival tradition, other special events throughout the year, and our year-round education and outreach, please visit clearwaterjazz.com.